When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, once again, we are a house divided, but that, my friends, can no longer be. We are facing too many crises. We have too much work to do. We have too bright a future to have a a shipwrecked on the shoals of anger and hate and division. The history of COVID-19 is that you could look and feel like you're doing reasonably well, and after a couple of days, you could have a downturn. When you're looking at over 210,000 dead bodies in our country. And you know, the vice president is the head of the task force and knew on January 28th how serious this was. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So I'm trying to keep myself from getting elegiac and sort of valedictory as they do on the final few episodes of a sitcom we already know is not being renewed by Aaron B. Spelling. Because heaven help us, Trumpcast is the show that keeps getting renewed. We hosted a finale party for this damned thing on November 8th, 2016, and we were absolutely crushed as the night dragged on to find we still had our jobs. And here I am, still using the name of Voldemort every time I give the name of this eponymous show, Voldemort Cast. And but as much as I want all of us to be out of our misery, mostly me, because you take breaks from Trump and I never ever do, I can count on nothing. Maybe the coup is coming, maybe a civil war, maybe the ballots will be fake counted all the way till the earth implodes, maybe a new monarchy will rise with a strangely immortal, though of course still infectious, king spitting his pathogenic hatred and bile hither and yon, somehow this time on the wings of the internet, or maybe a conditioner will carry it all into our scalps and then our bloodstreams, where the militias trade secrets for how to kidnap Democratic governors and of course pull off their demo side, and all this QAnon psychosis infects every brain cell till we are all snuffed out forever. No, no, I swear to you, with everything I have, I will do a Trumpcast finale in the next few months, whatever that may mean to you. Today, my guest is Sarah Jones. She's a staff writer at New York Magazine's Intelligencer. Sarah, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you for having me. So let's start with Claudia Conway because it's a move. I mean, we can get through this kind of little trivial passage into the larger story. But you point out and have pointed out now for years that we are not going to get a savior. And it's certainly not going to be everybody's TikTok favorite daughter of George and Kellyanne Conway. Right. Tell me about that or how you came to that conclusion. Why did you, why was this, you wrote this buzzkill piece? Like, why can't we have a little <laughs> Greta Thunberg here for a second? I am so sympathetic to the temptation. I really am. I mean, I'm just as weary, I think, as everybody else and, you know, kind of desperate for any sort of hope on the horizon. Yeah. I think what, what made me uncomfortable about the Conway situation in particular, she's, she's so young. She's 15. It doesn't, seem frankly like a, a health family environment and I worry about becoming complicit perhaps 
in in something exploitative. I'm just generally uncomfortable, I think, sometimes with the way that people sort of looked at teen girls for hope for salvation. Teen girls are great. I was one. <laughs> I think I think people should listen to teen girls more often. That the idea that, you know, we're sort of pinning our, our hopes for the future on on children, I think it can end up being a distraction in a way. The grown-ups should be thinking about what we can do to make the future easier on them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Biden, even Biden saying, I mean, it's just hitting me now that he's a transitional president and the future belongs to the young and there are hope does mm-hmm. seem to be a little bit passing the buck. If he's not yet in the Oval Office, he should be saying, I'm going to lead, you know, I'm going to help. There's a leader here. There's a leader in the room instead of like, I'm just going to barely hold on. And uh, and it's up to you. My kids, teachers keep saying to them. We've screwed up the environment. Obama has said it. It's now up to you to solve it. When, you know, they're in their 30s, <laughs> they, they could do something. Right. And these seven-year-olds are like, you know, up to us. What? Right. Yeah. No, I think there's a lot of that. I want to hear from Biden. What are you going to, okay, you're a transitional president. What are you going to do to sort of tee things up? Like, I want to hear that from you. Yeah. And I think that's what teenagers need to hear from the adults in the room to begin with. Like, so that I know as someone who's in her early 30s I look around and I'm like you guys saddled us with this all of this yeah and I don't want to do that I don't want to do that to to people who are coming up behind me and so I you know it's complicated because as a journalist I kind of I look at Conway she's in a very unique situation and they kind of break news and that's newsworthy so that's that's a dilemma but I think if you're not a journalist it should be a little bit simpler maybe it's the sort of thing that I worry about when it plays out in public like that. I think some of the concern or hope for children, it's actually kind of the flip side of QAnon, that we're all sort of doing, like QAnon believes that they're doing it for the children. Anti-abortion activists believe that they're doing it for the unborn children. There's some way that there's like some kind of, do people even say inner child anymore, but there's some incredibly vulnerable part in us that needs to see our, like, we need to sort of um, outsource that or project it onto actual children or babies. I mean, I see after this Rod Rosenstein news, you see people once again revisiting the question of children separated at the border. Of course, there are lots of women and men also in dire straits who are dying in huge numbers at the border, but it's the kids, somehow the kids that we have to focus on. We'll say one thing in Claudia Conway's defense I mean, she is a figure for the population. We're trapped in a room with maybe a never-Trumper on the one hand, Project Lincoln supplying our one way out. And, uh, you know, on the the other hand, you know, a seemingly quite mentally ill, now COVID-infected Trumpite mother. You know, it doesn't take a lot to see ourselves in Claudia Conway doing these, I mean, these extraordinary TikToks that are, you know, basically like help me, help me. It, it kind of sounds like every American on Twitter talking to the UN, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No. And I think there's on, on a personal basis too, I think there's something that anyone who maybe has experience with a very fraught family situation, either because yeah. of ideological differences or what have you can see something in her that they emphasize with. And so it's, it's very easy to sort of personalize what's going on with her. 
Yes, I think that's right. And the other great reality, I mean, we have a lot of reality stars. TikTok, I think, I mean, even you were a child before TikTok. Um, so, um, <laughs> yes, I was. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, for The Apprentice and then obviously Kim Kardashian's husband is involved in this catastrophic moment and all the reality stars. I mean, a lot of this is playing out on TikTok and Twitter and what used to be reality TV. So that, there's another way that she's she's come into that mix. But also as a reality character like Donald Trump, she's there's florid mental illness around her. If not, she's in a very dangerous position as a 15-year-old. You know, can you imagine at 15 broadcasting to a million followers the troubles you were having at home? Yeah. Quite well-documented troubles. Yeah. Why didn't uh, George and Kellyanne do what they said they were going to do and step back to tend to family matters? I have no... I, it's so confusing to me and it's very difficult to follow any sort of logic in the thought process. Um, if my family issues were that public, I would certainly prioritize addressing that. Uh, so for Kellyanne, I, I have to assume that this is just really ideological. She She's loyal to Trump. She's loyal to what he represents. And that seems like it's taking precedence over everything else. Yeah, I think that's right. Another recent piece of yours that follows a little bit the same trajectory was about right after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. You may remember 15, 20 years ago um, right. when when she died before the president had COVID, before his taxes were revealed. But I think, you know, you sort of tacked against the moment of complete elegy, like we had lost our, our one last hope to make this point about your own feminist trajectory and also about some of the ways that RBG's ladylikeness and other qualities, um, you know, kind of failed us. For one, I don't like, I hate bipartisan friendships. Nothing worse than a Scalia <laughs> friendship. Don't like people going to the opera. I like everybody should stay in their lane and, and uh, you know, don't, so, don't, don't socialize with anyone that you're not in lockstep with. That's mm -hmm. my policy. <laughs> Yeah. But aside from that, tell us a tiny bit, because I'm very interested in evangelical, you call it, say, fundamentalist Christian backgrounds and mm -hmm. how they brought you to this story. I mean, how they've inflected your your coverage. Right. I mean, that was a difficult piece to write because, you know, she was such an impressive figure. And I certainly didn't want to sound dismissive or flippant or in any way. Um, for me, coming from a from a fundamentalist sort of evangelical background in a tradition where women just had no authority whatsoever, we weren't in the pulpit. You know, you you could maybe you could teach Sunday school, you could teach other women, you could teach other children, and that was that was really the end of it. And you know, growing up that way, I had a moment that I think a lot of other girls growing up the same way kind of have, where you you can see the rest of your life laid out very, very clearly for you. Yeah. And you either like the sound of that or you don't like the sound of that. And I didn't like the sound of that. And so obviously gravitated toward feminism. And after I left the church was just so desperate for any sort of sign of like female authority or like women being successful professionally, because I really hadn't had that modeled for me at, at all. And I was just sort of striking out on my own trying to figure mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. And so I totally get, you know, the drive, the impulse to, you know, kind of find someone to admire. And just over time, you know, I, I identify now as, as a socialist, I'm a socialist feminist. So there's sort of a, there's a class critique in, in my feminism and, and it's just become a little bit more complicated over time. And I, I find myself 
not gravitating towards public figures in the same way, still finding in, mm-hmm. in, in the person of Ruth Bader Ginsburg quite a lot to admire, but thinking about what I'd, I'd love to see in the future and like the, the sort of America that I would like to live in. And I think it's hard to ever make that a reality if we can't talk honestly about our public figures and maybe where they went wrong so that we can avoid making some of them the same mistakes. I was surprised actually because the most radical statement that she delivered was, you know, something like, I ask no favors for my sex, only they get their feet, you know, that men get their feet off my throat. And that mm-hmm. sounded suitably kind of Marxist and powerful. Yeah. And right. uh, and then I discovered that it was by like this firebrand uh, abolitionist. She had, I mean, abolitionist and early suffragist and that she had borrowed it from from her. And that was I was, I think, interesting that, you know, it's like with Hillary Clinton, you just try to find her boldest statement and it's women's rights or human rights. You just, you know, there's, <laughs> it's not a lot to gather. It's not a lot to, it's not galvanizing um, in the same way that, you know, you might want from a leader. At the same time, we had um, Paul Butler on recently and he was talking <laughs> about he's a, a huge admirer and not a critic of the way Black Lives Matter has come together. And, uh, you know, with three female founders who choose to remain anonymous and without a charismatic leader, just strategically, it means that someone doesn't get shot or die. And that is the end of the movement. Charismatic male leaders, and maybe in this case, this case, female leaders are dangerous, you know, and not part of, as you say, a kind of collective idea of progress. Black Lives Matter might be a, something to look to for what, how future movements will act. Mm-hmm. I look to the labor movement a little bit too, not that the labor movement yeah. is without its flaws, but I cover labor a lot, so it's on my mind. And just the same basic emphasis on building collective power, I think is is really important. And I think something to sort of model going forward. Yeah, that makes sense. And I do appreciate how far left you've moved from your childhood. Like one of the one of the things I've been interested in is how people who came from from childhoods like yours or backgrounds like yours, or even some of the former Trumpites, you know, David Weissman, this sort of famous former Trump troll, like once the shackles are off, move really far to the left. You know, it's not like they want to split the difference in like in a lefty childhood like mine of just like, oh, maybe gradualism versus this versus that, you know, who who would we choose between, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris? And you all tend to have experienced the brunt of kind of conservatism more. And so it's not a question of like dickering around on a chessboard, but, you know, this can't stand. And I admire that. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things, right? Like when you do see the brunt of the movement, as you said, I mean, it's hard to see it as anything but a very real existential threat. Yeah. It's got to be all hands, you know, Yeah, Um, and it's urgent. It's very urgent. And the right wing, I think, is very good at urgency. And I think that, you know, on the the left side of things, we haven't matched that urgency always with with our own. And I think that's a problem. Right. I mean, we don't regularly instill in each other that this is a crisis. Let's talk about our president's disease and um, <laughs> and say in a kind of pro forma way that no one is gunning for the president to get sicker or so sick that he no longer exists. Mm-hmm. That is not being said on this show at all. I mean, not even being intimated because it is, I mean, I think that we'd like to see justice done. And as you point out, you know, Trump getting the disease is not justice. Right. I'm not sure I believe that smokers, quote, deserve to get lung cancer or any of those direct lines. So I don't like that he 
models this extremely irresponsible, if not suicidal behavior for for the rest of us who've lost families to this disease. At the same time, I don't know what to make of this. I kind of think of the, of Epstein's death as having deprived his victims of a certain kind of day in court. I don't know what to think. How about you? I, I sort of feel the same way. I mean, the, the idea of like, how do we even go about getting justice for any, any of the people Trump has harmed after the fact is just so big. It's hard to figure out a way into that. And the, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, there's court solutions and I'm not a, a lawyer or even a legal writer. So I, you know, I'm not an expert on, a, on what that would possibly even look like. Although it seems like it has to be a possibility, but too, like if you're on the left, then you should, you're very familiar, I'm sure with, you know, arguments about the limitations of just relying on the criminal justice system as a, a to get justice for all victims. I think we're agreed that you know, that that can be too narrow and it just doesn't work. So we have to think bigger. And for me, ultimately, it's a political problem and it's making sure that Trumpism dies with the Trump presidency and that it takes a collective movement and it can take years. And for me, at the heart of it is just, you know, the absolute disregard for human life that you've seen Trump model for the last four years in various aspects, whether that's separating breastfeeding infants from their mothers, and now more recently with COVID, you know, that has to go with him. We have to make sure that people's lives actually have meaning and weight going forward. And that means addressing all aspects of the ideology that he sort of comes to embody. Yeah. It's not a pat answer, but I don't think that there is a very, there's not a need or pat answer to this. Let me try something on you just to ask how it affected sort of your nervous system, if you can. When Trump was diagnosed, you know, I was woken up. I was on Twitter plenty late at night. Don't think I wasn't being vigilant. um, And yet (laughs) somehow managed to go to sleep before the news broke. I was woken up in the morning with the news. And oh, my God, was that less than a week ago? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, I had this. I started to wonder what poetic justice is. That's one thing. I mean, what is it as a conceit? And then also, second to that, I have been to see all these fail-safes break on the way. I mean, I'm a person who thought that, you know, of course I thought that he wouldn't win the primary, that he certainly wouldn't win the win, in quotes, the election. But I, you know, I was someone who parked my faith in like Jill Stein's recount, the Hamilton electors. <laughs> There's got to be something to stop it. And basically haven't gotten invested every step of the way. Comey, it's Mueller. You know, it's uh, it's uprisings on the street. It's the Women's March. It's something, something's going to stem this tide. And I got to say, one institution held biology. And it's very nice to see even just natural law, even just germ theory reassert itself, just something that like that works the way we learned it works, just like tautologically like there's, you know, it doesn't it isn't filtered through any of the artifacts of civilization, including the law, you know, just something that, you know, gravity is still obtains. It's just quite satisfying in a certain way. Right. Yeah, no, it's hard to spin gravity. Yeah, I, yeah, it was strange. I was in the middle of falling asleep and my fiance kind of shook me awake and like, oh, Trump's got COVID. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. But honestly, my reaction then and like still my reaction is just anger. Like my, my grandfather passed away from complications of COVID last month. Oh, I'm sorry. My aunt also yeah. back at Easter. Yeah. It, yeah, it's horrible. And like, I, I'm from a very conservative area of Virginia. And so I, I flew down when it 
when we realized obviously that he wasn't doing very well and I saw people walking around without masks and why were they walking around without masks? They were listening to Trump. That's where it was coming from because he was telling them that it was fine, that the virus was essentially a hoax. Meanwhile, my grandfather was dying mostly alone down the street. And so I just felt angry um, and just, yeah, and tired, <laughs> angry and tired and just sort of bereft of new things to, to say, which is a problem when you're a writer professionally. <laughs> Another kind of beautiful thing you've done is sort of thematize how like mute you sometimes feel. I think you actually, isn't the first line of your piece about Trump's COVID and I have nothing to say. I'm not yeah, I'm running out of things to say. <laughs> I'm running out of things to say. Yeah. I mean, that a major chord played, you know, just like a moment where instead of processing, I mean, you mentioned a kind of in, in incongruities, cognitive dissonance among evangelicals that, that, you know, they've had to suppress so much in, it, you know, thinking, but everything I grew up with and, and parked my principles in, my, my built my life around is violated by this president. So I have to like, you know, I have to embrace a whole new doctrine that he's some pagan savior or whatever. Well, we've all had to do that on some level, like in order to just get out of bed and think the country is still going. We have a president who's closely aligned with Vladimir Putin and and it has a love affair with Kim Jong-un. We've never heard anything like this. There's just like no continuity. You know, at least Bush and Cheney were p still potentially a worse regime than this one. I don't know. It's, it's a toss up. But you knew what they were going to do. You were just like, they're... They're, you know, right-wing hawks, and this is what they do. And Trump is, like, keeping us... I mean, it's it's more than gaslighting. There's a cognitive burden on all of us to make sense of every day. So mm -hmm. hearing something like a man that thinks coronavirus is a hoax and won't wear a mask and has objected to science all along and denied the evidence of our eyes is now sick with that disease. I've heard a major chord. I heard a little bit like at least something adds up. Yeah, no, it was, it did return, I think, a little bit of logic and weight to the news cycle. And you know, like I said, very hard to spin that. Like it is, it, yes. you know, of course, <laughs> you, you picked an apple off the tree, dropped it, and it did in fact fall to the ground. <laughs> that's, yes. that's what happened. And the video wasn't doctored. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, it is hard. And I share, I think, what I think a lot of people have expressed, not re especially recently, but not only recently, which is just, it's, it becomes so overwhelming that it often, to me, it feels so absurd. It's hard to process as reality, uh, right, like consistently. And in fact, it is, especially this year. I mean, COVID, a recession, you now, like all this stuff running up to the election, it, you know, it's the, it kind of makes my brain want to shut down yeah. a little bit the worst possible time. <laughs> yeah. Although I found myself, you know, there's been so much mirroring, like, you know, the, it's like our mirror neurons start to, or I, I tried to write a piece about how we adopt Trump's vocabulary and some of his style. And, you know, when people were thinking in the debate, how do you, how do you beat Trump? It was always like, you shout him down, you do all the things that he does. Right. And so something in this, I mean, I got off Twitter for, for let's say, 24 hours. I want to call it a week, but 24 hours. And that time was because right before it, I had felt like I was on a roid rage steroid tilt myself where Trump is, <laughs> you know? Right. I was just like everything, like you say, the worst possible time to shut down. I mean, maybe it's a good time to shut down. That reactive 
Twitter energy, you know, what am I like of service to my country and my ideals by like chipping off jokes about COVID that, and trying to keep them tasteful? You know, that is not a good use of the brain. Yeah, no, I mean, I went to my editors the sort of the, the in the morning, you know, after getting the news, obviously, of Trump's diagnosis and was like, well, I just, just buried my grandfather. And I don't know that I have anything I can say that you can publish right yeah. now. Like, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know that it's there. Yeah. And eventually I did write that, that piece, but it, mm-hmm. it did take a while to sort of figure out to sort of get past the initial rage response and maybe say anything constructive about it because rage was really just the initial, the initial reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's, it's actually a good thing to take a, to take the time to process it. Like you said, instead of sort of just like shooting off a, a tweet, although I did that too, but like, you know, it's not always the, it's not always a helpful impulse. I mean, it's almost like we, if you overreact, then you're in the cytokine storm phase of the phase of the right. disease, you know, mm-hmm. we sort of are like, we can't lie down and take it, but we shouldn't also chew ourselves up over it. Um, and, right. uh, yeah, it's a rough balance. So tell me about your grandfather. I talked about my aunt on the show, but just so we remember that, you know, he's not just a number. Yeah. His name was Charlie. He was from Maine originally. He moved down to Southwest Virginia to be near us after my grandmother passed. Uh, he loved hunting. He loved fishing. He was a really talented carver and woodworker. Oh, like yeah, like whittling or like making bigger things. Making bigger things. He used to make toys. He used to make. We've got this big chest in my parents' house that he made. Just a really kind, you know, in church every Sunday, in church early every Sunday. How did he mix the Maine accent with the uh, Southwest Virginia? Yeah, my mother does. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so funny. They were actually cracking Joe. We had a, we weren't able to have obviously like a funeral funeral, uh, which was hard, but we had like a small memorial service where everyone, we just had a few people and everyone, it was outside and people wore masks, um, but they were all making jokes about the accent. Cause if you've heard the main, like it's a very thick, he's oh, a word. Yeah. Yeah, working class Maine accent. The Pepperidge fam remembers. <laughs> exactly like that, which is very different from the Southwest Virginia accent, which I obviously I don't have. Um, but it's a very distinctive accent as well. So, you know, I'm sure like he was good friends with all of his neighbors. And- <laughs> I like that he held on to it, though, because the, the oh, pressure yeah. to give it up. It, it, it says a lot of, about a person if they see themselves as having gotten over an accent or preserving theirs, you know, at all costs. <laughs> and, you know, we sort of joke about Americans that come back with British accents. So I kind of like that he just was Maine through and through. Oh, absolutely. No, he ne- he would never regress. I mean, my mom doesn't have a very thick Maine accent, but she never picked up a Southern accent either. Yeah. She was very proud of that. <laughs> So. <laughs> All right. Well, may the memory of a tr- I, I'm from New Hampshire, so I would try to do it, but in his honor, but I can't. Maybe the memory <laughs> of Charlie be a blessing. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not sure that either of us likes to do this, but I have to ask smart people what you think might happen. Not as like, I'm not going to play this back and say, this hasn't aged well or it has aged well, I promise, (laughs) whatever you say. But I mean, what do you just sort of, as you're making plans for your life, what do you think is going to happen in the next, you know, very difficult couple of months? Yeah, I mean, 
I'm tentatively optimistic that that Biden will win. Um, of course, I did say that in 2016, so mm-hmm. I guess grain of salt. But I'm tentatively optimistic that Biden will win. I what I am worried most worried about, and what I think unfortunately is a likely possibility, is more incidents of white nationalist violence. Um, whether that's coming out of QAnon because the president lost an election, um, and you know they react very badly to that lone wolf violence of the sort that we've seen before. That's that's what I really worry about, and I wish that I didn't think that that was a realistic possibility, but I do, unfortunately. I think that's something that we're going to be living with, at least, I mean, we've been living with it, right? Like, this is, in large part, this is also the story of America, but I do worry about that a lot. Um, I, I worry about further unrest kind of in the short term, so it's not a very cheerful answer. I mean, it was a little bit more than a week ago that Trump, we don't know if he was sick or not when he said it, but he told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. And right. um, presumably, they've been standing by waiting, as they've said on online, waiting for their next mm-hmm. instructions. And he also seemed to recruit them to go and stage intimidation campaigns at the polls. So, right. I think, you know, you're justified in this, um, in that anxiety and Oath Keepers and others have signed on, you know, who, just extensions right. of, of Proud Boys. Do you think there's a less chance of civil war slash the slow rolling coup or the coup when we, you know, we heard in that Atlantic piece, the the strong possibility that they would try to shake down the states on the bubble to mess with the count in the electoral college. I don't know. I, I sort of thought if Trump is even semi sidelined in a steroid something, or if he's sick or whatever, he might not be able to pull that off, but Bill Barr could. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, certainly I'm, I'm really reluctant to say that anything is impossible, if that makes sense. Yeah. At this point, I mean, he's already made it very clear that he he does not want... He, he, I mean, I should back up a little bit. I think he's internalized on some level that he's not in good shape to win re-election, and that's why he's so upset, and that's why he's freaking out, and has been making noises about it being an illegitimate election mm-hmm. already. So if he's already in that mode, that does make me worried about what could happen next and what mm-hmm. Barr could do, especially because Barr is so dogmatic and so committed to Trump. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly am worried about it. I, I don't know how likely it is, but I mean, honestly, who knows? Yeah. Who knows at this point? Maybe something that, you know, you could talk about more confidently is because you don't work mostly just like, you know, t- clicking whatever chipping off ideas from the news, you take this broader view. Let's say that Trump doesn't win, that Biden-Harris are in office. Do you think that Biden, who's been sending signs to the left, has been trying to distance himself from Sanders supporters by way of throwing off the charge that he's a socialist, and yet (laughs) one hopes that you know, AOC and, you know, the left ear instincts of Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren will be included in the new administration. I mean, do you think there's a chance that we could dismantle some of the institutions that got us here in the first place, one, and possibly chart a course for something better? I do think it's possible. I also think I have to think it's possible, right? I keep thinking of like, it's become kind of a slogan in the left, right? It's a paraphrase of something Antonio Gramsci wrote. Uh, you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And I don't know how else to Mm. approach this except with that in mind. 
Wait, wait, sorry, who, who said that? That's such a little, little I believe that it was originally a paraphrase of something that Antonio Gramsci wrote in prison notebooks. But oh, nice. Um, Listen to you with your Gramsci. I knew like you guys go so far left when you like you just blow past every kind of like neoliberalism <laughs> and are down watch with the me, Gramsci. Right. I mean, may, watch me get the source of the quote wrong. Oh, I hope you're reading the. Uh, I hope you're reading reading the work of um, Pete Buttigieg's father, Gramsci. Oh my You probably God. know that. I know. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, like, I I interviewed Pramila Jaipal recently uh, for the website, oh, yeah. and and she has a really great perspective on this. Uh, I think it's really interesting because obviously she's a very strong supporter of Medicare for all, was mm-hmm. a Sanders surrogate, and has sort of been working on the Biden trend, you know, with the Unity Task Force. Mm-hmm. And like, if you are on the left, and these issues are important for you. That, you really only have one option with Joe Biden, who's being very honest when he says he's not a socialist. That's just the truth. Yeah. Um, you just keep up the pressure. And like there, we've already like the, the idea that Medicare for all is a mainstream now in comparison to where it was in 2016, but it's progress and that, but it's taken a lot of work and it's just going to require a lot of work going forward. So yeah. my hope is that yes, Biden is right when he says I'm going to be a transition president and that transition is to a more egalitarian future. And that is just going to take a lot of sustained pressure. And I do think that the left is in a much stronger position than it was four years ago to keep up that pressure from inside Congress and from outside as well. I welcome all views in the future from uh, this, the whole range from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez all the way to Amy Klobuchar. I really (laughs) will tolerate the whole spectrum. I just, that's what I hope. There's such a robust debate among, say, a Biden, the Biden supporters, Sanders supporters, or, you know, Ocasio-Cortez supporters and Klobuchar mm-hmm. supporters. That is a really interesting debate. I mean, like set of debates. Can you imagine over the next four years getting to delve into how Medicare for all might be rolled out or whether we drop the age of Medicare for all? I mean, we could be having a lively progressive debate instead of a debate that amounts to, you know, us just putting our arms up so we can stop getting hit in the face. That's not a debate. You know, right, right. It is true. Like, Biden, obviously, not my my first choice. I will vote for him. I think that's true of a lot of people on the left right now. But you have to admit, with Biden and obvious Biden in office, obviously, the possibilities can expand in a way that just is not possible under under Trump, and won't be possible under Trump if he gets another four years. That's just that's just the reality. Sarah Jones is a staff writer at New York Magazine's Intelligencer. Thank you so much for being here, Sarah. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. What did you think? Don't hold back. Rate and comment on your preferred podcast app and then find us on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then if you haven't joined Slate Plus, you must. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up. It's incredibly important to us at Slate and at Trumpcast in particular. Plus members, get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.